How you guys doing this morning? Is everybody lively and awake on the basis of that one last hour of sleep last night? If you need to get up mid-sermon to go get another cup of warm brew in the back corner there, you're more than welcome to do that. I consider you guys more than conquerors this morning, not only for having overcome the lost hour of sleep, but the roadblocks on 74 North that many of you may have encountered on your way here. Some of you doubly overcame in order to be a part of this room this morning. And, um, and I think it'll be worthwhile because we're going to dive into the scriptures this morning that never return void. But before we do that, um, just a quick announcement to add to the list of announcements this morning. On March 29th, which uh, is a Sunday afternoon, we're actually going to host our next partnership class, which is essentially the language we use for church membership. Um, it's the first time that we will have done that on a Sunday in an effort to try to accommodate those who have been unable to come out on a Saturday uh, when we've uh, historically done it on a Saturday in the past. And so if you've been around the church for a significant amount of time to which you would consider exploring whether you might become a member of this church, a partner with us in the gospel in that way, I would love for you to sign up for that and come check it out. Um, March 29th, right after the service, and it'll carry us to mid-afternoon. So we'll provide lunch. You gotta eat after a Sunday service anyway, so come eat for free and be a part of that, and we'll add just a couple hours past the lunch window of time to that to finish up the content of that, and I think it'll be well worth your while. Um, We've recently... um, dispensed a new version of our partnership booklet and the content um, I'm very excited about, encouraged by, and looking forward to teaching through that. So uh, you can sign up on the website under the uh, events uh, tab. Uh, You can also, I think there may be one of the QR codes that you can scan with the camera of your phone in the bulletin this morning and sign up that way. Um, And we'll be sending out emails in the next couple weeks as well with a link to be able to sign up for that too. For those who maybe are curious as to where we are in the scriptures, uh, you shouldn't be because Lydia told you, so unless you turned your ears off, you, uh, you would know that we are currently in the book of 2 Corinthians in a sermon series entitled Light of the Gospel, a book that is filled with surprisingly some of the most famous verses in all of scripture, um, verses that for many of us uh, have informed our understanding of the Christian life, perhaps Uh, shaped our experience of the Christian life. As Paul says, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. These are just a a few of the verses that we've encountered as recently as the past few weeks of this series. I've said it before and I'll say it again. The sequel is just as impressive as the original. And not only because it expresses some of the deepest truths in all of scripture, invoking worship and praise of the God that it reveals, but also because it's incredibly practical in speaking to our struggles with present uncertainty, which many of us bring into this place this morning, our propensity to hide our weaknesses, which is a default mechanism for many of us in this room, in giving us a vision of what it means to live for Christ, to radically and generously spend our lives and be spent for the glory of God as we walk, as Paul says, by faith, not by sight, hemmed in by the, the love of Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll be in the first 13 verses this morning. 
If you don't have a Bible, as I say each and every week, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you nearby. Feel free to use that Bible as we dive in this morning. Feel free to take that Bible if you don't presently own a Bible. Let me go ahead and pray for us and we'll get after it. God, thank you for the honesty of the Christian worldview on the very basis of what we're going to encounter this morning. The Apostle Paul, not sweeping his sufferings under the rug, pretending as though the Christian life is easy, happy-go-lucky, without its challenges, as though a relationship with the living God in Christ Jesus wipes away all of our problems in this fallen, broken world in which we're surrounded with so many things that, that make this world sad. No, Paul is honest about the realities of what it is to, to live and breathe the air of this fallen world. And yet at the same time, he doesn't leave us there because he knows that there are victories that eclipse the calamities, the hardships that are found in Jesus so that we can walk away honestly this morning saying, yes, life is hard and maybe not as hard as it was in many ways for the apostle Paul, but it doesn't diminish the reality of the things that we're going through. You care, God. You care deeply and you care to eclipse our calamities and hardships with the same victories that Paul talks about in this morning's passage. And so I pray that we would see that. I pray that we would walk away with steel in the the rod of the spine of our souls this morning as we leave this place, encouraged, hopeful, trusting in you all the more. And, And that as a very outward expression, even missionally speaking, that people would see the indomitable joy that we have in Jesus in the midst of suffering and that would radically impact the way they think about their own lives. I ask you to do all of this, God, by the power of the Holy Spirit who we invite to move and work mightily in our midst as we open up your word this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So in closing out chapter five, just to catch us up to speed a little bit, Paul presents us with this stunning message of reconciliation in Christ. God having overcome his hostility toward us as rebellious sinners by the shed blood of Jesus, the one having come under the flaming sword of God's judgment to use that Garden of Eden language, opening this way back up to paradise and ultimately to a a restored relationship with the living God. The record of debt that stood against us, making us enemies of God, nailed to the cross. The record of righteousness gifted to us in Jesus, establishing us as friends of God. God's great work of reconciliation, Paul says, so that when you meet your maker, Christian, you will not meet an enemy, but a friend. The hostility that once existed between you and God is no longer. Where there was once hostility, there is now peace. His face no longer turned away from you, but rather towards you with the light of reconcilement shining in your direction. Going back to last week, not only are we meant to be stunned by this reconciling work of God, overwhelmed by his wondrous grace toward us in Jesus Christ, but we're, we're also meant to embrace the ministry that we've been given. Now ambassadors for Christ, Paul says, God making his appeal through us, entrusting to us this stunning message of reconciliation. That as Christians, we don't speak in our own name, nor do we speak on our own authority. We represent the kingdom of Jesus. We represent King Jesus himself, which is why Paul begins here in chapter six with these words, picking up in verse one. 
working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, quote, in a favorable time, I listened to you and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, Paul says, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. He says, working together with him, imploring others, pleading with them on behalf of Jesus. Paul's pleading in this moment, at this point in the letter, here with his audience in Corinth, not to receive the grace of God in vain. Some scholars believe that that Paul is exhorting Christians in Corinth to persevere in the faith with a, a warning of the danger of apostasy similar to those found in the book of Hebrews. Maybe you remember those if you were around for that series. Other scholars believe that Paul is addressing unbelievers, those who have heard the gospel of grace and yet remain outside of Christ. And still other scholars in a third camp believe that um, Paul has in mind not a full-on rejection of the gospel per se, but rather going back to chapter five, verse 10, the Christian forfeiting the blessings and rewards that might have otherwise been obtained. Really hard to definitively say one way or the other here. But what's crystal clear is that there's this urgency about the apostle Paul as evidenced by his quoting here of Isaiah chapter 49, verse eight, a prophecy having to do with both the humiliation and exaltation of the coming Messiah who would rescue God's people from their sins, who would free his people from exile and and bring about, to use that language again, God's great work of reconciliation. Paul declares, taking that passage and applying it to his audience in this letter that today is the day of salvation. Isaiah's day of salvation has arrived in the reconciliation of the cross of Jesus Christ. That we get the privilege of reminding one another that today is a new day. Yesterday is done with. Today is the day to declare our trust in the Lord. Today is the day to fix our eyes on Jesus. Today is the day to declare our confidence in the gospel. Paul says in verse three, we put no obstacle in, in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Here Paul comes back to the defense of his ministry, which we've seen traced throughout this letter. If you recall, roughly a year's gone by since the penning of the prequel, the original 1 Corinthians, a year in which many have come to, to question Paul's credibility as an apostle on the basis of his many sufferings, asking themselves the question, if you're really an apostle of Jesus Christ, shouldn't your life be going a little bit more swimmingly? So that part of the purpose of Paul's writing is to address the naysayers in defense of his apostolic authority as a minister of the gospel. Here Paul declares that he's given no cause for offense, no hypocrisy in speech, no hypocrisy in conduct. He's not declaring that he's a perfect man, but he's saying that that there is something that comes alongside in the way he lives his life and pairs with the message of the gospel that he proclaims. Similar to what Paul says back in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 12, we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, I, I don't wanna do anything that might prevent the advancement of the gospel. I don't want my life to be the the proverbial hole in the road that gets in the way of Jesus being made much of. As he said back in chapter five, I'm an open book before God and I'm an open book before you all as well. But that's not all that Paul says. 
He's not simply looking to communicate the ways that he doesn't get in the way of the gospel, that he doesn't present obstacles to Jesus, but he's also looking to communicate here in chapter six, the ways that his life and ministry actually authenticate the gospel message that he proclaims of hope in Jesus Christ. And and notice how Paul begins. My guess is that many of us would not write a resume this way. What's the first way that he commends himself to those in Corinth? His first way of propping up the gospel message and ministry that he's embraced. His first way of propping up the goodness, glory, and grace of God. He says this in verse four. By great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. Right? Maybe the best you could do with that on a resume for many of us would be, I'm really good at problem solving. As we've seen throughout this letter, Paul's strategy, it's not to diminish his suffering. It's not to minimize his weaknesses. His strategy, rather, is to declare just how drastic his suffering actually is to boast of his weaknesses so that the power of Jesus might rest upon him, so that God might get the glory, so that Paul might proclaim with his very life a dependency and reliance not on himself but on the living God whose power is made perfect in weakness. What establishes Paul's legitimacy as a minister of the gospel before he goes anywhere else? Endurance in the midst of great suffering the enduring strength that he receives from Jesus who himself endured suffering and ultimately death. He says, number one, endurance in afflictions, hardships, and calamities. The the general language of pain and suffering, it's a junk drawer term so that if you don't understand or can't um, grab hold of the sufferings that will ensue as Paul talks, you can at least grab hold of this and say, that resonates with me. It marked Paul's life in ministry, hardship, Pain, sickness, suffering. He lived much of his apostolic life in the furnace of affliction, you might say. Secondly, he gets a little more specific. Endurance in beatings, imprisonments, and riots. Those sufferings that came at the hands of others as a minister of the gospel. Including the five times he was flogged by the Jews. The 39 lashes. Multiply it by five. As well as the three times he was beaten with rods by the Romans. His body must have been a pummeled mess, including his imprisonment with Silas and Philippi, along with the many other imprisonments that he experienced, including the many riots that ensued in the wake of his preaching of the gospel, perhaps the most famous being the one that broke out in the city of Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. And then thirdly, he says, endurance in labors, sleepless nights, and hunger, those sufferings that Paul voluntarily experienced for the sake of the gospel. Some of us don't even have a category for that. Like, I'll take what comes my way, but you see Paul here talking about the voluntary aspects of suffering that he experienced so that the gospel might go forth. Whether it was his laboring as a tent maker to make ends meet or his laboring in the gospel, whether it was his sleeplessness and commitment to prayer like Jesus or his sleeplessness due to the dangers that surrounded him, perhaps even his anxiety for the churches that he had planted, whether it was the hunger that came as a result of his being without or the hunger that came in his commitment to fasting, those, those opposed to Paul, they saw his sufferings as a ministry disqualifier when his endurance and suffering was actually a declaration of the beauty of the gospel and the sufficiency of Jesus. Paul understood his moments of suffering 
to be opportunities, not liabilities, but assets for the sake of the gospel. A chance to put the supreme worth of Jesus on full display. So that one of the takeaways for me, I thought about this this week, may we take our cue from the Apostle Paul in this regard as we declare the sufficiency of Jesus in the midst of our hardships. Even if we can't relate to some of the things on the list, the junk drawer terminology that Paul begins with brings us into this. May we take our cue from the Apostle Paul in enduring with the strength that God supplies. He goes on to say in verse six, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love. What else establishes Paul's legitimacy as a minister of the gospel alongside his endurance and suffering? It's the work of the Holy Spirit in his life and heart. We talked about this back in chapter three, the ministry of the new covenant. One of the great benefits of the new covenant established in Jesus' blood is the embedding of God's will deep within the hearts of his people by his spirit. So that going back to verses four and five, Paul's not championing some sort of self-wrought endurance, the kind oftentimes accompanied by bitterness, jealousy, resentment. He's championing a spirit-wrought endurance which includes the kind of language you see in Galatians 5. Love, patience, kindness, the fruit of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit fostering so much more, Paul knows. Knowledge and purity, he says. Sound doctrine and the conduct that accompanies a belief and trust in Jesus and his gospel. In stark contrast, by the way, going back to chapter 5, verse 12, to those who boast about outward appearance, and not about what is in the heart. Or to use Paul's language as he closes out chapter three, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Right? Does anybody else find it intriguing that Paul includes virtues in this list, and then right in the middle of it, he throws in the third person of the Godhead? Isn't that strange? It's as if Paul's saying, as a reminder, I'm not talking about self-empowered virtues here. I'm not talking about self-wrought morality, but rather gifts of the, the indwelling Holy Spirit who indwells his people as sons and daughters of the living God reconciled to God in Jesus Christ. He says in verse seven, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the, the right hand and for the left. What else establishes Paul's ministry? His legitimacy as an apostle, integrity of message and dependence upon God. As he's already said on more than one occasion in this letter, I'm not in it for financial gain, nor am I in it for increased acceptance and popularity. I'm not in it for the book deals or the opportunities to blog. I'm, I'm under no pressure to dilute the gospel I'm not looking to tamper with God's word. My, my speech is truthful. My message is simple. Chapter four, verse five, Jesus Christ as Lord. Christ in him crucified, as Paul says elsewhere. A message that Paul understands is accompanied by the power of God. It's not powerless. God's strength made perfect in weakness. His weaponry sufficient for the battle. So, some scholars believe the weapon imagery to be that of a, a sword in one hand and a shield in the other, similar to the way Paul talks in Ephesians 6, where you get that famous passage on the armor of God that we're to put on. 
so that you have one weapon for offense, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and one for defense, the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, to use that Galatians or Ephesians 6 language. Other scholars don't wanna limit um, God's ability to provide and believe the weapon imagery isn't so much about the limitation of two weapons, but rather Paul's way of communicating the comprehensive arsenal that God gives his people for the battle. So that either way, Paul worships a God who gives his people what they need, that they might fight the good fight of faith. Perhaps that's what many of us in this room need to be reminded of this morning, that you've been given what you need for whatever battle you may find yourself in right now by the indwelling power and giftings of the Holy Spirit, by way of the, the weapon of the word of God that you have in hand to wield, you, you've been given what you need for what you face right now and what you will face in the days to come. Whatever the, the good fight of faith looks like in, in the fight for you personally. He goes on to say this in verse eight. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. I, I love this. What else establishes Paul's legitimacy as a minister of the gospel? The fact that everything he's listed up to verse eight has nothing to do with whether or not he's liked or disliked, honored or dishonored. The grace to endure, not only in the seasons and situations where he's honored as a minister of the gospel, but in the seasons where he's dishonored too, through the slander and the praise. The transforming work of the spirit, not incumbent upon people honoring Paul and praising him, but the work of the spirit still happening in dishonor and slander. Integrity of message and dependence on God, not just when it's easy, when he's honored, when he's praised, but when he walks through seasons of dishonor and slander at the hands and, and lips of other people. Hey, what we're talking about here is a man no longer in bondage to the fragile human ego, no longer desperate for approval nor destroyed by criticism. My goodness. Like, if there's anything that a lot of us in this room could grab hold of, it's that right there. It's that reminder that in Christ, we have the perfect approval of God. We don't have to live that way. Only the gospel. I would ask you the question, have you experienced that kind of freedom from the fragile ego? Have you experienced the kind of hope that comes in knowing that you cannot lose, Christian? He goes on to say some of the most famous words in all of Paul's letters, the end of verse eight, we are treated as imposters and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished and not yet killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing everything. Sounds a lot like what we saw back in chapter four. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, the, the seeming tragedies of life, you might say, eclipsed by the victories Paul experiences in Jesus Christ. It's the upside down nature of the hope of the gospel. Treated as an imposter, Paul says, yet faithful to speak and embody the truth, unrecognized by his 
opponents in relative obscurity to many in the eyes of the world, yet beautifully and wonderfully recognized by God and fellow saints. Faced with his own mortality in the midst of the punishing sufferings of this world, yet as animated and alive as he had ever been. Sorrowful in the furnace of affliction, yet with an inextinguishable joy in Jesus Christ. Poor, according to the world's standards, going back to earlier language, and an inexpensive jar of clay, yet carrying the priceless treasure of the gospel that makes those who receive it rich. Having nothing in the eyes of many, yet possessing all things as a co-heir with Jesus Christ. The gospel turned everything upside down on its head for the Apostle Paul, radically reorienting his perspective. Going back to last week, the shadow of Christ's cross fell across Paul's view and it wrecked him for the better. It's what the gospel does. It's what the God of the gospel does. I would ask, has the shadow of Christ's cross fallen across your view? Has the shadow of Christ's cross fallen across your view recently? Not in a, when I was converted 20 years ago, the shadow of Christ's cross fell across my view and now I'm just kind of coasting in apathy until the day Jesus returns or I die and then I'll point back to that shadow of his cross falling across my view back then and and just kind of bank on that. No, Paul understands the shadow of the cross of Jesus Christ to be a regular falling across our view that radically reorients us daily, moment by moment changing our perspective so that we can live as truly free, joyful people. He goes on to say in closing this morning's passage, verse 11, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Hey, to, to be crystal clear, Paul's not trying to get the rebellious minority in Corinth to like him. He, he's not out to secure an apology in an attempt to mend his fragile ego. That's not what's happening here. He's calling those in Corinth to consider the evidence that he's just presented and to respond appropriately. As a, as a father in the faith, he's calling them to widen their hearts. Going back to last week, to be controlled by the love of Christ. That word control in the original Greek in chapter five, literally meaning hemmed in. If you were here last week, you may remember this, like a river that flows between its banks. The apostle Paul was hemmed in by the love of Christ, Christ's affection for him being the very banks of that river, shaping the direction of his thoughts, shaping the direction of his affections, shaping the direction of his decisions. Paul's writing to many who have been hemmed in by something else, that something narrowing their hearts. That's what something else's do. Filling them with the muddied waters of fear, the muddied waters of suspicion, the muddied waters of doubt and distrust. Paul Paul understands, he knows, that the love of Christ has the power to not only widen the banks, but to purify the waters that run within those banks. 
And so he, he calls them to know the joy of being hemmed in by the love of Jesus. It's really simple. A love expressed in his dying for us, going back to last week, so that I would ask you, because I think Paul would say the same thing to us this morning. What hems you in? What shapes the direction of your thoughts? What, what ultimately shapes the direction of your affections, your emotions? What ultimately shapes the direction of your decisions, your actions? Is it the gospel? Is it the love of Christ? Or is it something else that perhaps has narrowed your heart? Has the shadow of Christ's cross fallen across your view? And might it need to fall across your view right this very moment on the basis of where you are in life right now? In the words of John Piper, he says, what the world needs from the church is our indomitable joy in Jesus in the midst of suffering and sorrow. May the love of Christ compel, control, fan into flame such indomitable joy, not only for our good and for the good of those in the church that we surround ourselves with, but, but for those who don't yet know Jesus to have to wrestle with.